is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name is Matt Brand, welcome to the program. There's been a fire at the Barclay Homestead Roadhouse overnight. The damage is severe and it is affecting fuel availability along the Barclay Highway. I'll be sharing the details of that with you very soon. Also today, the northern cotton industry struggling to get enough trucks to send a big crop down south for processing. It's been a long haul and very difficult this season, moving cotton modules from the north. Just access to trucks this year has been a nightmare and that's you know, there's a range of factors behind that. And after 40 years with the NT's Department of Primary Industry, Brian Gill has retired. We'll be speaking to him in the second half of the Country Hour to talk about his incredible career that started in 1982. We're broadcasting across the Territory on the ABC. G'day there if you are tuning in via the podcast. It's been a wet week or so in the Tenamai district of the Northern Territory with some parts getting over 150 millimetres of rain. John Bellardo is a truck driver who services the Granites Gold Mine out near the WA border. And he was actually on the Tenamai track when the region copped about 85 millimetres in just four hours. Yeah, well, I was out on site on Thursday and um, yeah, Thursday night we got a massive storm. It was yeah, definitely one of the biggest ones I've seen in 10 years. It was just went from horizon to horizon, really. And um, yeah, one one rain gauge said 85 mil or something at, on site there, and yeah, and really strong winds, you know, really violent storm, eh? But it was um, amazing to see, yeah, just huge, you know, like squally storm, you know. How did it look in the in the aftermath? Yeah, like there was um, signs blown down on site and um, a few little things like that, but yeah, it it um, made it pretty boggy and messy, that's for sure, you know, and every top of lost the day there just waiting for it to dry up a bit and and it did the wind the wind was there also so that helped it dry up a bit quicker and yeah just had to um sit tight and wait and um yeah and get get going once it dried up how is the the road condition you you drive up and down the tenemai how is the road condition with all of this rain has it yeah, held up any it, of your um, work no the, the rain hasn't been as bad as the traffic the traffic's um yeah, made it extremely corrugated this year because there's so much heavy traffic going out that way. Yeah, and so the rain in most parts of the road has been pretty welcoming. There's a couple of, um, I suppose you'd say, low spots, uh, 20 kilometres from the granites that are of real concern to us all at the moment. Um, yeah, so they've got a great crew out there at the moment. It's doing a fantastic job. Rick Shelton and the boys from Rams there, they're just cutting those corrugations with a big machine and it's just really done a fantastic job and lift the condition of that road you know so um yeah and then also the the um exact contracting up the unamu end of the dirt section um sealing that 60k job and they they're just powering along their massive contractor now for the northern territory and and they yeah they're putting in big concrete floodways you know and so all those little crossings that we used to wait on or just have big concrete crossings across them now it's just yeah it's just transforming that whole road eh? Right, very busy out in the Tenemai. Um, and you're saying yeah. busier than usual this, this year? Oh, yeah, for sure, yeah. With the um, T2 upgrade at the, on site for the Granite Skull Mine, yeah, the big new mine, mine out there, yeah. They're upgrading the facility to get the ore out of the bottom of the mine. It's an underground mine fully now, and so they put a shaft in to skip the material vertical rather than truck it out. Um, yeah, and so 
you're just making it more and more efficient, you know. And um, yeah, and so that upgrade along with all the other running, usual running stuff, has made it particularly busy out on that road. Yeah, it's probably um, the equal amount of trucks coming in from the north as well. So yeah, a lot of the structural steel work they needed for the upgrade and that is coming directly out of Perth and comes in from the Hall Street end. And so yeah, like it's nothing to see nine or ten triples at the gatehouse there waiting to go in in the mornings that had come in from the other side, you know, and plus everything, all the Alice Base boys, you know, so, yeah, no, it's definitely, um, yeah, definitely busy, that's for sure, yeah. And we've heard a lot of election promises and talk in the federal budget about upgrades for the Tenamai, um, but it sounds like there is some work actually happening. Oh, definitely, definitely, yeah. So they've um, exact have already, I mean, they only started that project in, August, end of August type of thing. They put their big camp out there and workshop facilities and started, um, yeah, doing the detours and all that. And they've already sealed, I think it's 16 or 17 kilometres of that road north of Unamu. So, yeah, they're just doing an amazing job. They've got, you know, 125-room uh, camp at um, the 30K north of Unamu there. And, and yeah, they're just doing an amazing job. You know, the big lifts through there and, and the, car, um, the big concrete crossings on all the creeks. It's um, yeah, it's incredible to see the yeah. So all those election promises, believe me, they're all getting delivered. It's amazing to see. Is that a surprise for you? How long have you been driving the Tenamai? Um, yeah, I mean, it's not. A, yeah, it is a surprise. It's just welcoming, yeah. You know, like yeah, so we've been up and down that road for twenty-seven years, and um, yeah, I mean, we've done thirty-eight thousand trips to that site, and so in our lives, yeah, so. It's just beautiful to see that infrastructure going in and knowing that it's money well spent it's going to be there forever. And, yeah, like if they do get it across the border, I know the Western Australian government is pushing their side also, so they've got crews out their side doing the same thing. And, and yeah, like it's a, yeah, when you think it's 700 kilometres or 750 kilometres from Unamu to the Great Northern Highway on the other side, and if that can get achieved in the next couple of years, well, you know, like the, the flow-on effect of all the, cattle from up north plus all the um, you know vegetables and fruit out of the Kununurra irrigation area will all come through across the desert because it's so much shorter. Are you optimistic that will happen then in the, in the coming years given what's happening now? Yep definitely yeah so so like um yeah there's a 60k job and then there's a 90k extension on it I mean the surveyors are out there banging in pegs and marking that road and that so yeah it's um it's definitely happening this time, Matt. Yeah, you know, like it's um, really exciting to see, and and yeah, you know, like it's um, yeah, it's just beautiful Australian infrastructure that will be there for life. And and yeah, you know, when you think of the amount of tourists and that, I mean, you know, Alice Springs people will be nearly be able to drive to Broome for a weekend. So it's actually not that far, you know. So yeah, no, ho- hopefully they keep going. They will because um, you know, once you get it so far, it's it seems a lot easier because the end's in reach then. And so, yeah. You know, I'm not sure the last time I heard a, a truck driver speak optimistically about the Tenamai. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been a long life and out there and living on that desert. But, you know, like, um, yeah, no, this time it's, you know, they've got, yeah, they, they've definitely got a, a big, a big strong contractor that's got a lot behind them and a lot of big machinery. And so, you know, like, um, yeah, their timelines are—they're uh, breaking every record in the book, you know, like laying that material down and and um, yeah, the big crushes making the road base. It's just yeah, it's just amazing to see every every trip you go out there, you can just see progress and and um, 
yeah, it's just it's nearly exciting, to be honest with you. John Bellardo from GNS Transport speaking to Max Rowley about the Tenamai, both the big amounts of rain that have been out there in the last week or so and the work happening to the track, a bit of tar getting slapped down. John Bellardo actually excited about the condition of the Tenamai Road. Max is right. That is unusual to hear. Very unusual. It's exciting. There's been some serious rain. Uh, I've just brought up the weekly rainfall totals for the Northern Territory. And if we look at the Tenamai and the Victoria River District, some big numbers here, ladies and gentlemen. Mount Sanford Cattle Station, 201 millimetres for the week. Larger Manu Airport, 161. Cattle Creek, 128 millimetres. Birindudu Station, 209. Upper Wickham River, 169. And Townsend Creek, 149 millimetres. And there's more to come. We'll be speaking to the Weather Bureau at five past one to get the latest. G'day, my name's Trevor Derling. I work for Parent Water and you're listening to The Country Hour. It is 20 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Now, if you're planning a trip along the Barclay Highway, be aware that there's currently no fuel available between three ways and Kemmerwheel. And that's because of a fire overnight at the Barclay Homestead Roadhouse. Dan Fitzgerald joins us with the details. Uh, This is awful. Yeah, not good news for the Barclay Homestead indeed, Matt. Uh, There was a post on the Roadhouse's Facebook page uh, earlier today saying that, sadly, we have woken up this morning to a fire in the Roadhouse kitchen. Uh, Another post went on to say, uh, we are waiting for the fire inspector to arrive, but there is significant damage. All electricity has been cut, so unfortunately there is no fuel, no food and no camping. The Barclay Homestead is closed indefinitely, it says. So please plan your fuel supplies and fuel up at either three ways or at Camoil. So that's a a pretty long stretch of the road there with no fuel. Um, If you were in a very small vehicle, I think that would make it quite challenging to get from (laughs) A to B. Yeah, just plan right. Um, Roads Report NT also posted on its social media about this, advising motorists uh, of the fuel situation. Uh, Road Report NT says at this stage this could remain the case for up to a week and road users travelling in the area should factor into this uh, into their trip planning. So, yeah, some tough news for the Barclay Homestead. A lot of people on their Facebook page are uh, expressing a lot of sympathy yeah, for them. because um, it was only, I don't know, a month or so ago that a nasty storm swept through, knocked down lots of trees, caused some damage, and now this fire, and they have posted a few pictures as well on their Facebook page, looks to have absolutely gutted parts of the building there. So just awful. Yeah, not good news. So, um, yeah, if you are travelling that way, uh, make sure you plan your trip. Yeah. Okay, thanks for the update, Dan Fitzgerald. It is 19 to 1 on the Country Hour. Speaking of highways, no doubt if you've been travelling around the north this year, you've seen cotton getting trucked out of places like Catherine, the Douglas Daly, the Audio Irrigation Scheme. It's all heading down south for processing. But as you'll hear next, for northern cotton growers, it's been really challenging actually getting those trucks. I'll tell you all about it next. My name's Ashley from Bam Bam Spring Station. I'm Jacqueline Dakin from Anthony Lagoon. I'm Georgie from Catherine. And you're listening to the Country Hour. <laughs> 
cotton growers in northern Australia say this season has highlighted why the Territory and WA desperately need their own processing gins. As Steph Sinclair explains, a huge crop has been accompanied by all sorts of supply chain problems. If you visited some farms in the north of Australia today, you'd find hundreds of bales of valuable cotton that was harvested a couple of months ago. The farmers don't want it on farm, but they can't get it to the nearest cotton gins that are thousands of kilometres away. Pete Johnson runs Leftfield Solutions, a brokerage company that works with northern growers and east coast processors. He says a record cotton crop was planted in the expanding Ord Valley and Northern Territory growing regions and there are all sorts of reasons why it's been so hard getting that cotton to the gins. It's been a long haul and very difficult this season moving cotton modules from the north down to the east coast. We've got the bulk of it's probably being ginned at Dalby and southern Queensland, also some going further south to the Riverina in southern New South Wales. It's a long way. It's well over 3,000 k's to Dalby, so you've got the distance alone. But just access to trucks this year has been a nightmare, and that's you know, there's a range of factors behind that. Flooding on the east coast has also had a ripple effect on the northern cotton supply chain. Where I am, I'm, I'm based in Toowoomba in, in southern Queensland. I do a lot of work through Queensland and northern New South Wales and it's been a debacle. You know, we've had challenges getting modules out of fields, challenges getting just getting stuff to gin and that's before you take into account the impacts on grain logistics as well. We're just trucks getting stuck in different spots. It's been the most difficult season I can remember. And like everyone else, the cotton industry has been struggling to find skilled staff, particularly for the transport side of things. The NT Road Transport Association's Louise Bellato says, unfortunately, some fleets just can't run at full capacity because there's not enough drivers. Everyone's doing more with less. The road transport industry has really felt it hard. We stood up because all freight was essential through COVID incredibly well. And, you know, the road transport industry was exceptional during that period. But like every industry, we're facing massive workforce shortages. And overall, across every jurisdiction, we're looking at strategies to try to recruit And of course, alongside a huge jump in demand for trucks, you've also got rising fuel prices pushing up freight costs. Ord Valley cotton farmer Jim Engelke says industry's really feeling it. Yeah, certainly uh, freight has jumped, but uh, it's alongside everything else that's uh, gone up and fertiliser being, and I think anyone in uh, agriculture will know only too well that uh, the price of fertiliser has jumped an awful lot uh, in the last 12 to 18 months. So look, the combined effect of all those price lifts across the board, certainly squeezing, uh, squeezing margins and particularly in a region like here where you're so reliant, so heavily reliant on freight to get things in and out. Yeah, you can see your margins tighten up very quickly. And as the wet season approaches in the north, there are concerns cotton left sitting on farm could get wet and that could cost growers money as well. Clearly that doesn't do it any good if it gets too wet and you do, you can get some downgrades on the basis of that. The ideal scenario would be you pick it, uh, you put it on a truck and you send it east. Clearly that's not what we've got so We make uh, the best of what we've got uh, and we get it across there when we can. But there's light at the end of the tunnel for cotton growers in the Northern Territory and WA. 
Now, Catherine Cotton Gin should be up and running next year and money has just been locked in for a processing facility in the Kimberley's Ord Valley. Definitely takes out that risk about getting it to a uh, facility. So we know for sure that we can get the modules into a cotton gin once we have one here. Uh, we're not faced with that freight problem. In terms of all the other costs, it won't bring them down, but you know we, we certainly at least uh, get around the, the freight and the bottleneck of the freight issue, which restricts our production capacity in the ord anyway. And there's Ord Valley cotton grower Jim Engelke speaking to Steph Sinclair. And you can read more about this story online right now if you go searching for NT Country Hour. Last year, ABC Gives raised an amazing $1.5 million for Australians in need. This year, we're teaming up again with our charity partners to raise that amount and more to help people in your local community struggling to cope with rising living costs. There's big need out there and Australians have big hearts and generous spirits. So join with us and help brighten your community. ABC Gives. Head to abc.net.au slash ntgives to donate today. Some very interesting seafood news this week. Under the sea. So Tasmanian aquaculture company Tassel has officially been taken over by Canadian seafood giant Cook Aquaculture in a deal worth $1.7 billion. And its new owner is looking at expanding beyond salmon and prawns. Dan Fitzgerald, Cook Aquaculture. What do we know about it and its plans? Well, yeah, it's from Canada. It's a huge huge company. Um, it farms all sorts of uh, species uh, across the globe, really. And um, yeah, this takeover of Tassel, it's been coming for quite some time. Yes. It officially happened on Monday. Um, and yeah, speaking to the Australian newspaper, Glenn Cook, the CEO, he said uh, he'd like to see Tassel branch out into other fish species, including barramundi. Barramundi? Yeah, righty home. Yeah, he's uh, interested in barra. The Tassel CEO, Mark Ryan, said... Yeah, tassel doesn't necessarily have to be just salmon and prawns. Um, lots of opportunities in barramundi or kingfish. Mm. Um, he told the Australian that barramundi is so similar to salmon, it's not funny in terms of infrastructure and practices. So there's no reason why we couldn't employ that into growing barramundi. Mm, where exactly that would happen. Uh, it well, it's got operations obviously in Tasmania, but also in North Queensland. That's where its prawn operations mm. are. So, And obviously it's a company that's got a few dollars. Yeah, um, $1.7 billion, uh, this takeover of Tassel. It's a big deal in the aquaculture sector. And, of course, it comes after the Brazilian giant JBS took, took over human aquaculture right. last year. So both of the big players in the farmed salmon industry are now foreign-owned. Unreal. Okay, thank you very much, Dan. That's big seafood news, that. G'day, it's Trent here from Catherine, and I'm here feeding Old Mate the Crocodile. Yes, Old Mate is actually his name. He's 2.4 metres and he's a saltwater crocodile. You wouldn't want to meet one of these fellas late at night. Take it easy, you're listening to The Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. In a moment, we'll be speaking to Brian Gill, who has retired after 40 years working for the NT's Department of Primary Industries. 
And you wouldn't think the Country Hour would talk about the Soccer World Cup, but we are. And the reason we're talking about it is because in amongst all of the football action, there's an Australian company that deals in compost that has got a seriously big Guernsey over in Qatar. I'll tell you more about that before 1.30 today on the Country Hour. Let's go to the Weather Bureau. Sally Cutter is there this afternoon. How are you, Sally? Uh, Not too bad, thanks. Hey, look at these top-end radars. A lot of colour this afternoon. What's going on? Oh, we've had a little bit of a line come through or worked its way along the top end over overnight and through this morning. That's just actually reached Darwin. And whilst the airport hasn't had any recorded any rain yet, in Casuarina, we can't actually see the swimming pool. So it's, it's pretty bucketing down in the northern suburbs, which is a bit of a change given that we haven't had much rain in the north, but we are continuing to see the showers and storms right across the top end. And even though they're still at the moment in the western, sorry, eastern parts of the Daly district, they will extend through to the west. And we're just seeing a lot of showers. We've just hit that time of day when the showers and storms are really starting to fire up. Yeah, it seems like it's bucketing down in places like Adelaide River, Pine Creek, and there's a lot of moisture off the coast as well. Are we likely to see that descend onto the mainland? That probably isn't, but it would be helping the cloud we're seeing through central Australia at the moment. We've got a bit of a cloud band through the southern half of the NT. That's going to peak during tomorrow and then ease off a little bit on Thursday to be quickly replaced by the next trough out over to moving in from over WA. Then that's going to come through the southern parts of the NT, move up into the Barclay on Monday put, could produce some pretty good rainfall totals through the Barclay before moving into the top end. And when you say some pretty good rainfall totals for the Barclay, can you give us a few numbers, please, Sally? Oh, 30 to 45 millimetres. Yep. So that that's, that's, that's pretty decent falls for, for that part of the, the woods. Whatever, And we, are seeing, we have seen some big falls down through the Victoria River catchment overnight as well. And what... What's that doing is basically bringing the rivers up and so across the causeways. So it's not breaking the banks yet, but the, it's just elevating those the, the water levels. And so if, if you are travelling out that way, just, just watch mm. those crossings. Yeah, just in terms of 24-hour rainfall totals, Mount Sanford Cattle Station, 115 millimetres in the gauge there, Canfield River, 50 uh, Sunshine Bore 57, Williams Crossing 43, and Upper Wickham River got 87 in the 24-hour period. Can the VRD and, and Tenamai expect you know, similar stuff over the next 24 hours or so? Uh, conditions should be easing through there. Okay. The trough that went through, Alice, is the, that surge is moving northwards and it's just going to clear everything, contract everything a little bit towards the, the western part. So out out of the Gregory, northern Tanami, southern Tanami will still see the rain. And that, they'll probably hang around for a couple of days. But then once we get into the weekend, we'll start to see a return, and particularly Sunday, Monday, as that trough moves through that area. Yeah. And the bit of blue that I can see on the Alice Springs radar, much in it, Sally? Uh, we haven't had many rec- recordings. It's just been light rain, nothing in the gauge down there. 
so it's it's just that really light, steady rain that maybe 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 settling the dust, but may not be quite that quite enough to do that. But the it's certainly providing a bit of cloud cover, which is keeping those temperatures down. Alice Springs is only twenty degrees and Yulara twenty three, mm. whereas Tennant Creek's twenty eight and they're at just on the edge of the cloud. Got a question here from someone who says, Are we going to see any rain in the northern Simpson southern Barclay anytime soon? Yes, we will. As we go, probably Sunday is your best chance through for those areas. The once the trough moves north, we, so it's going to be more the northern Barclay. So Monday, the but the we are, we will see a little bit of rain through that area. The yeah, it's maybe not to big totals, but we could could see probably those of twenty to thirty millimeters. Okay, and next week. Is there going to be any monsoonal activity, Sally Cutter? Mm, we've got that trough that's moving north, and that's going to end up near the north coast. At, at this stage, we're not in the next seven days. We're not expecting to see any monsoon, but the, as that trough moves north, it's going to be a trough. It's going to be near the north coast. We're going to have westerlies over the Arafura Sea, southeasterlies to the south. It may not te- quite make the definition of the monsoon trough, but. We certainly will see those showers and storms around. And with the trough, trough in the air, it's going to just enhance okay. those showers and storms. It's starting to look like the wet season, the proper wet season. Yep. Um, Sally Cutter, thanks yep. for your time this afternoon. Appreciate it. <laughs> That's okay. It is 11 past one here on the Country Hour. And to whoever in Central Australia sent through that rain question regarding the Southern Barclay, thanks so much. I hope you like the answer. <laughs> now, Brian Gill. He has retired after 40 years working for the NT's Department of Primary Industries in Central Australia. Most people in the industry know him as Gilly. He is well respected for his knowledge and dedication to the NT's cattle industry. As a teenager, Brian began his career in the cattle industry as a stockman on Undulia Station. And then in 1982, he was employed as a stock inspector with the department where he suddenly found himself in the front line of the BTEC program. So that's the National Brucellosis and Tuberculosis Eradication Campaign. I spoke to Brian about his career and how it all started. Yeah, well, I was uh, sitting in the pub and this uh, old mate, Maury Johns, came up to me and uh, he said, hey, you used to work out at Undulia Station, didn't you? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, we're looking for some stock inspectors. Why don't you come and have an interview? So I went in and had an interview and got got a job as a stocky, which uh, involved going out to all the cattle properties around Alice Springs District there, bleeding, taking blood samples for brucellosis and taking vets out there to uh, do the TB testing. So it was a good way to get around the district and meet new people and see new ideas and different cattle. And yeah, I loved it. This was quite a time to be starting your career. We're talking about the BTEC program. What were your memories of, of that period? Because it was pretty tough for a lot of people. Yeah, it was. Like It was a campaign that started way back in the 70s, but it just sort of smouldered along for a long time um, because uh, but we weren't getting 100% musters. So the as things sort of wound up a bit, uh, we had to enforce 100% musters, which involved... Uh, going back out into areas that had been mustered by choppers, and uh, and uh, shooting shooting out areas because a lot of the times bulls, scrub bulls, or or uh, herd bulls were left behind because they were either lazy or cunning, and 
the uh, bulls were the, the main carriers of TB and they used to spread it, you know, from head to head fighting, breathing it down each other's nose. So, yeah, that was pretty tough, you know, going out there and having to uh, shoot animals. But, uh, you know, it, was just, it had to be done. Otherwise, you know, an, animals in the yard, the uh, testing that was done on them was would have been a waste of time. What was it like for you, I guess, being a... Uh, you know, a young person at the time and, and, and having to carry out a job like this, what was it like sort of chatting to producers at the time? Yeah, well, it was uh, very challenging. Um, there was a lot of uh, decision-making, you know, like I can remember being in tr- up in the chopper and owner of a property would be talking to the pilot and saying, has he shot any yet? And they'd say, yeah, he's got a few now. And, he, you know, I could hear him ranting and raving and, saying, get him back here, the murderous bastard. And I said, no, we, we've got to, uh, said to the pilot, we've got to finish this job because I knew the pilot had to go on to another job and there was 2,000 head of cattle in the yard and I thought, well, they need, need to move up a status and, you know, he's going to be losing a few cattle unmusterable, but uh, for the, the betterment of the herd, it's uh, better that I keep going. And mm. Yeah, there was a few, uh, you know, tense, <laughs> tense moments. <laughs> How many livestock would have been culled during that period of BTEC, do you reckon? Oh, oh, well, around the Alice Springs area, there would have been thousands, you know, like on properties around the place. Not all not all properties lost a, a lot of cattle, but there was, you know, pe- uh, properties that were in, uh, on salt lakes that cattle couldn't be mustered. They'd be drinking salty water and there was no roads in there or no y- yards and the, the cattle couldn't be couldn't be moved by chopper or bull catchers because of the scrub, and they just fizzed straight away as soon as they ran a hundred metres, and you just couldn't do anything with them. So, animals like that had to be destocked. Um, there's also out in the Simpson Desert. That was a big big program. I've spent a few years going back with some forwards down there, going around all the flowing bores, and initially we were flying in helicopters, but when it got down to the last few animals, it was uh, two blokes on motorbikes, you know, following a track until you found them. In 2001, you were asked to go to United Kingdom, the UK, to assist with its efforts to eradicate foot and mouth disease. Tell us about that time. Yeah, well, that was uh, like the worst case scenario for England. They uh, had uh, a sale up in the north of England where all the farmers throughout the whole of England restocked any ewes that they'd lost over the winter months and uh, some foot mouth infected animals were taken to that sale which infected the whole yarding of the sheep there and farmers came from all over and took them home and so there was a big explosion of foot and mouth over the whole country and it was just a, such a huge a huge uh, thing to for them to try and uh, control they had to uh, they were getting vets in from overseas and uh, a lot of uh, stock inspectors or animal production type people that could handle stock and and that sort of thing were were, were asked to go over there for short stints and it was a, a, like a learning learning thing for us and to gain experience but it also helped them out so uh, you'd be given a few farms to go go to every morning and a vet was given to you and I would uh, you know be doing a lot of navigating because a lot of vets weren't able to read maps very well, so I was navigating and translating and catching sheep, and it was all pretty 
pretty ordinary. There weren't, weren't many yards, you know, the sheepdogs would go out and bring the sheep into the corner and, and hold them there. You'd have to run in and grab a sheep and then hold it while it was bled and let it go. And then dogs would bring the sheep back and grab another one. But it was, yeah, it was a huge campaign. And of course, foot and mouth disease has been in the news a lot this year because it's been detected in Indonesia. Do you think Australia is doing enough at the moment to, to keep it out of this country? Yeah, I think so. Like the uh, people in charge of that have, have been working on it for years and years and years. They've got plans in place and they, they know exactly what they will be doing. It's not like it's going to hit us and uh, be a big surprise. They're, they're quite prepared for what uh, what could happen and uh, there's contingencies in place. So, you know, if it does come, it'll be just a matter of going bang, bang, bang. This is what we've got to do and this is how it's going to work. So, yeah, it'll be a terrible thing if it comes in as well as lumpy skin disease. That's the other one that they're very worried about. So, uh, mm. yeah, it won't be good, but they, they'll, uh, they'll have it in hand and they'll jump on it pretty quick, I reckon. Before you retired, were you a part of any of the plans? I mean, you're, you're the veteran with the experience. Well, we, we did have, you know, there's been uh, workshops and things like that. I think I've been to a couple of them since I've been back and, you know, all part of the contingency plans and that sort of thing where you, you train and, and learn different aspects of what would go on. So, yeah, I've had, I've had a bit to do with that, yeah. If you're tuning in, this is the Country Hour. And we are speaking to Brian Gill, who has retired from the Territory's Department of Industry after 40 years with the public service in Central Australia. Uh, Brian, the um, the setup of Old Man Plains Research Station near Alice Springs, you had a lot to do with that. Can you can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, I did. I got a few cattle at the Arizona Research Institute before uh, the NT government purchased Alice Springs. Uh, the Parks and Wildlife were chasing that once it uh, had to be sold to get all the, the range country and the, the water holes and gorges to make a, the Larapenta walking trail, which they've done. And there was a, uh, a section of land in the middle of Owen Springs that I, I thought, well, you know, we could we could expand our operations at the, the Arizona there because we only had like 100 head, but there was about 500 square k's, big paddock in the middle there that was... Uh, you know, not much use to anyone else, really. So we uh, we put in for that and eventually got hold of that. And, uh, yeah, we uh, spent a lot of time running waters and building fences. We had uh, not a lot of money because uh, there was no budget for it for many years, but we used prison labour on the fencing, and that worked pretty well. We, you know, we got a fellow down from Darwin, Ben, ben Bumer and Sally Sims and I got in and did, laid a lot of poly pipe and, Got some tanks up on hills and reticulated water all over the place. And then the, the researchers uh, got involved and we had about seven paddocks where we uh, started a quality grazing trial, which was started in about 2010, a long-term grazing trial. You've watched Central Australia's cattle industry for the last 40 years. For you, what it would have been some of the big changes, Brian? Oh, I guess, you know, it's... The markets have changed a bit over the years. You know, at one stage, the live export was all the go and people were buying Brahmin bulls and chucking them in on their herd and doing some cross-breeding. And then, uh, you know, that, that changes. It's, it's a bit hard to uh, to chase markets by breeding. I think if, uh, most of them now have sort of settled into uh, markets that they know that they can service and, you know, whether it be cattle to South Australia or... On, on the boats from Darwin, or they they can even go to Queensland. Some have even gone to WA. So 
I think they're all pretty set in their, their breeds these days and they know where they can go. It's, uh, they're sort of centralised in the territory so they, they can chase live export or go down south depending on the season. And for you, after 40 years, what's, what's next for you, Brian? Well, I've got a little farm down on the Floria Peninsula and uh, got a few cattle and a few sheep. I've joined the Floria Beef Group, which is a, a pretty active little group down here. And once a month we go to different farms and have a meeting and they get different speakers. And I find that very interesting. And, uh, yeah, so I'm just sort of enjoying the lifestyle down here. My wife will be at her business shortly and coming to join me. And, you know, we'll be checking out a few wineries and things like that. Sounds good. A big thanks to Brian Gill for sharing time for the Country Hour. And we wish him all of the best in retirement. It is 22 past one. Yeah, so the Socceroos World Cup campaign in Qatar kicks off tomorrow morning against France. But today on the Country Hour, we're focusing on another Aussie team. The company Pete's Group, in partnership with three Qatari companies, will be composting all of the organic waste from the stadiums and other official venues of this event. Danny Mitrasidis from Pete's Group explains the company's bio bin and how it'll help reduce waste at the World Cup. So BioBin is an in-vessel composting unit that takes green waste, organic waste, uh, food waste, animal waste and certified compostable products and uh, turns that into compost in a safe and efficient way that meets all biosecurity requirements. So it's a closed in-vessel unit that operates uh, with, a, with a biofilter as part of its technology. It's lined with carbon, which is your wood chippy material and essentially all you do is lift up the lid and put your food waste in there as well. And what you need is the, the carbon and nitrogen and also air and moisture. And collectively, um, with the microorganisms in there, the airflow produces the ammonia and the uh, good bugs fight the bad bugs and the good bugs win all the time. So how did you come to be pairing with the FIFA World Cup in Qatar? Personally, I'm, I'm football crazy. And I think there's a, a quote from the Liverpool manager, uh, Bob Paisley, that said that... Uh, it's, football's not about life or death, it's more important than that. <laughs> so uh, family and friends know that I just want to watch the Socceroos play. And I was persistent, persuasive to convince the organisers, along with our business partners, to have the buy-bin at the, the World Cup stadiums. They came to saw the, uh, see the pilot programs uh, that we had with other clients in and around Qatar, and um, they were convinced that this is the way to go. But at the same time, we needed to be a little bit more mature and robust with our Qatari business partners to saying that once we get all this food waste, where does it go? How do we commercialise it? How do we actually um, put it in bags and provide it for retail and other farmers and other users and municipalities as well? So we formed another company that allowed us to do that. And uh, that company, collectively with um, our shared vision, took that as a business case to FIFA uh, and uh, the buy bins are there, ready to go, taking the food waste from all the stadiums and the fan parks, and uh, we're going to leave a legacy. What is the compost that's created from all the waste from all the people who are going to be at the World Cup? Where is that going to go? It goes to um, our business partners, AgriCompost. Apex Waste Solutions and Management um, deliver that process, um, and then uh, it goes back to uh, the farmers, municipalities, 
uh, green projects and other major events as well as beautification projects across Qatar. So we're looking at greening Qatar. People talk about environmental management, people talk about sustainability and their processes, but the outcome is a circular economy. So what goes into the buy bin, never, ever, ever, being organic, has to be dumped or buried or go to landfill. You know, using um, gardens and parks as part of the goal, well, you need good soil to actually grow things. Less water, greater, greater yield in plant, um, and that's what we're showing them in, in Qatar, for example. How much waste do you think you will be turning into compost at the World Cup? At the uh, Arab Cup last year, which was the precursor to the World Cup, uh, 16 nations over two weeks, but only in two or three stadiums, we diverted over 75 tonnes of waste. And the stadiums went full. It wasn't a fully blown uh, event in amongst the COVID and the pandemic restrictions as well. Um, but now we're talking about thousands of tonnes because the World Cup is kicking off. 32 nations, 64 matches over one month. It's going to be relentless. And uh, there's going to be thousands of tonnes diverted in there. And from just one event, only one client. So our whole um, scope of all this is to make the business scalable um, and then uh, use that as a template for other uh, major events that we have here in South Australia or in Australia. And it's great for a South Aussie company to, to qualify like the Socceroos for the World Cup. How do you actually ensure that the waste that you're collecting is actually compostable? So the food vendors and the catering companies that won the contracts for the FIFA World Cup had to uh, adhere to their policies and procedures, which we had an input in, and it was a covenant that they had to, uh, under mandate, have certified compostable with certification as proof, bags, wraps, uh, utensils, um, cutlery, cups, all those sorts of things. You're heading over to the World Cup. I'm sure you're going to be taking in a few games, but what does it mean to you to see this South Australian invention be used at, at such a major world event? I haven't really reflected on that, and other people are starting to ask me that, but I think once I get there, football first, right, and football last, um, but in between that, I think it'll be a sense of accomplishment and, and being proud because it started from Peter Waterwitz, it started from his family business, um, it's grown into something that's international, and I'm really, really proud that, you know, I can say, you know, one or two of us actually changed a major institution's thought process in how that's being done. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. That is Denny Mitricidis, who is from the Pete's Group, speaking there to Cassie Huff. It is time now in the country hour to head to the sale yards. Of all the latest prices out of Roma, here is Cheryl Stefano. Good afternoon. Numbers fell to 5,715 at the Roma store sale. Cattle mostly drawn from the usual supplier in steers accounted for over half of the yarding. Overall, the quality was good and numbers of heavy steers and bullocks were still present. A good buying panel was present and operating, including all regular processes. Steers were still selling at the time of this interim report and the market appears to have eased. The limited number of lightweight steers under 200 kilos sold to an interim top of 572.2, while lightweight steers under 280 kilos sold to a top of 648. Medium weight steers under 330 kilos made to 642.2, while medium weight steers under 400 kilos sold to an interim top of 558.2. Heavy feeders made to an interim top of 488.2, while young heavy bullocks 
sold to 454.2. This has been Cheryl Stavano for the National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you for that, Cheryl. Just repeating the news that if you're planning on travelling along the Barclay Highway, be aware there's been a severe fire at the Barclay Homestead Roadhouse and there is no fuel available at the Barclay Homestead. So you'll need to fuel up at Three Ways or Camel Wheel. No fuel at the Barclay Homestead Roadhouse. That is a nasty incident there. There's a video up on the ABC Alice Springs Facebook page this afternoon if you are interested. Hope you can join us for tomorrow's Country Hour. We'll be broadcasting live from the Territory Natural Resource Management Conference for 2022. Looking forward to that. Keep it rural.